The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So I've just completed a series of talks on mindfulness and specifically looking at mindfulness as a quality in the mind and as the first factor of awakening, this list of mental factors that the Buddha talked about that arise together in balance whenever the mind is having insight or capable of insight, capable of seeing things as they are, capable of not being confused by our concepts. So when we're not confused by our concepts, it means that the mind's in balance, and that mind in balance can be described in seven, as having seven qualities. Mindfulness, and then three energizing qualities, the quality of invest investigation, quality of energy, the quality of joy or rapture, and then three tranquilizing qualities, the quality of tranquility, concentration or one-pointedness, and equanimity. So tonight I'm going to begin talking about the second factor of investigation. But I thought I'd just see if, if there's anybody who has any questions about mindfulness before I go on. Just in terms of your own practice, but also technically, like what, is, what does it mean, this quality of mindfulness? What does it mean for mindfulness to be present in the mind, in the heart? How is it that we recognize this quality in the mind? So any thoughts before we go on? Any questions about that? I know some of you haven't been here in the previous weeks. The talks are in the library and eventually get up on the website, so you can always download the previous talks. Okay, so I'll go ahead. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit about all of the seven factors for a few minutes before specifically addressing investigation as one of the seven factors of awakening. Or it's even appropriate to say one of the factors of wisdom, of a, of a wise mind or a wise heart, or one of the factors of insight. And it's interesting. It's interesting on a lot of levels. Uh, on just a folk religious level, but also in terms of a deeper human psychology, that in Buddhism these seven factors were um, used to help people when they're ill. And there's a story of the Buddha visiting one of his senior disciples, Mahakasapa, and he was really sick. I don't know what he had, but he was really sick. And so the Buddha gave him a talk on the seven factors of awakening, and uh, as he was giving this talk, and um, and this monk was reflecting on what the Buddha was saying, for whatever reason, it shifted the illness. And afterward, after the talk, he got up, and the illness was gone. And even the Buddha, who you you know we think of as being sort of above the world, you know, he got sick, of course, at times too. He was just a human being capable of sickness like the rest of us, and he was sick. And once he asked one of his other monks to repeat the teachings on the seven factors of, a, of awakening for himself, 
And the monk did that. I think it was Kunda who did that. And after he was done giving the Buddha his own talk on the seven factors of awakening, because they would memorize the Buddha's talks, then the Buddha's illness evaporated. And even modern science is beginning to demonstrate that how the mind is really affects how the body's systems work. And if we're full of fear and full of worry, it really affects the healing process. And if the mind is filled with these energizing factors and filled with the beautiful tranquilizing factors and a nice balance, held together with the seventh, fact, seventh factor of mindfulness, this not forgetting or this ongoing presence, well, we can, I think it isn't that big of a step to imagine what a healing uh, power for the mind or for the heart to be in that place. So I, I mention this up, up front because part of it is, it's part of the tradition about the healing power of the seven factors, just thinking about them. But, but more importantly, to notice like when you just, like if you want to be a good student, you can go home and you can spend the next seven days, or we'll probably spend several weeks on this factor, you can spend the next several weeks ongo in an ongoing way reflecting on the experience of investigation. What does wholesome investigation look like? Simply bringing that to mind, simply reestablishing your intention not to go through life in a superficial way, but to have this interest or this uh, spirit of investigation of wanting to see things in their essence, not content with the superficial uh, movement through life. Just remembering that, let alone whether you actually do anything about it, but just remembering the possibility of non-superficiality really affects us. Just like remembering the possibility of gratitude or any of the wholesome states has a profound effect. Our life is completely suggestible. You know, we see we see one thing, you know, in the media, in a magazine, or on the news, or on TV, and it has a real, it makes a real imprint. And if we see something else, it makes a real imprint. If we wake up and turn on National Public Radio and hear a story about somebody doing something really beautiful in the world, that really affects our whole day. Or, you know, on the other hand, if we hear something that's really despicable or see something, that can have a, a different kind of effect on the mind depending on how it's understood or seen. So even on an, in an intellectual way, like we're doing now, where you're hearing words and I'm teaching about a model that the Buddha used so that it's, we're kind of creating an intellectual framework or model to help us understand the mind better. But just understanding it as a conceptual framework can be inspiring, can be uh, conducive to uh, both energy and a deeper understanding. So just notice, just like if we were indulging in something not so wholesome, it would have an effect on the heart. So in terms of mindfulness, 
and in general just this balance of presence that includes all seven of these factors the three energizing the three tranquilizing held together with mindfulness this not forgetting this non-distraction this is this is really the whole point of practice not to even be so concerned about where it leads but just to set in motion to support set in motion what leads to everything that we want everything that we truly need and want and this was the last words the Buddha spoke he was talking about this and the chief disciple of the Buddha Sariputta his last words that are famous in the Buddhist tradition I'll just repeat them here so the Buddha's last words before he died transient are all component things work out your deliverance with mindfulness and his disciple Sariputta before he died strive on with mindfulness this is my advice to you and the Buddha says just as the Ganges or just as a river naturally inclines to the ocean if we simply remember the possibility of these seven factors and uh, in remembering them and in setting intentions we begin to recognize them more recognizing equanimity is the cause for it to be stronger recognizing investigation strengthens it so just by remembering this model even on an intellectual level will be the cause for seeing these factors actually present in the mind or seeing what's in the way so set something in motion and just as as it is inevitable for the water of the Mississippi down the street to eventually end up in the Gulf of Mexico if we pay attention to these seven factors if we cultivate these seven factors the mind inclines toward wisdom towards insight which in in the Buddhist system is not getting caught in self-centered delusion self-centered thinking self-centered fear self-centered greed and so the whole system of the seven factors of awakening uh, that we'll be learning over the next few months is part of of course the whole path that the Buddha taught so I want to review that and there's a couple of suttas that really spell it out or discourses that spell it out in a very thorough way partly because they didn't have written records at the time of the Buddha they had writing of course but they at the time just the tradition was that uh, sacred teachings or spiritual teachings you wouldn't write those down they, they were too important to write down they used writing for commerce but not for spiritual uses so because of that the teachings were systematized and really kind of um, logic logical lists and here's one of those and it's really great because it points out something that characterizes a lot of the teachings of the Buddha which really uh, are about karma karma means that intentions have consequences that's what karma means so uh, suffering has con- uh, suffering has causes suffering is the consequence of supporting causes 
And those would be really good to know, wouldn't, wouldn't they? It'd be really good to know what actually are the supporting causes for this heart to suffer. And it would be really good to know what actually are the supporting causes for this heart to be free of suffering, to be free of fear, to be free of greed and lust and all the afflictive states that we fall into all the time. So here's an example of the Buddha describing things in this cause and effect way. So he says, the basic impediment for freedom, a heart free of self-centered weight, the basic problem is ignorance or is the suffering that arises out of ignorance. And so how does it that ignorance comes to be? So ignorance comes to be, according to the Buddha, because, and we talked about this the last two weeks, of the five hindrances. So the five hindrances, these are qualities in the mind that hinder clear seeing, that get in the way of seeing things as they are, which means we're ignorant. So whenever we're ignorant, it means that the mind is being afflicted by some combination of the five hindrances, which are craving, so being attached to desire, being caught up in aversion or fear, being caught up in restlessness or dullness, sleepiness, or be caught up in doubt. So whenever we feel ignorant, then it's, it could be really useful to see, well, what, what is there hindering clarity? Because the mind, as the Buddha said, the mind is naturally radiant and clear, but it's obscured by visiting defilements, these five hindrances. So if we're not feeling so clear, if we're feeling caught, if we're feeling reactive in life, which I'm assuming for most of us or all of us is almost all the time, meaning there's some reactivity going on most of the time, and sometimes, of course, there's a lot of reactivity. It's quite painful and quite obvious to us that we're reactive. There's like a lot of fear or a lot of craving, a lot of humiliation, a lot of shame. You know, all the different afflictive forces that we feel. And so then we can just talk, okay, which of the hindrances are operating? Well, simply being mindful, beginning to being mindful, aware of these hindrances begins to undermine them. And we'll discover this next point, which is, well, what's the nutriment or the food that supports the hindrances in the mind? How is it that the hindrances get established in the mind? So just reflect on, on your own experience. I mean, we've all been caught up in aversion. So what is going on that supports the presence of aversion in the mind? or greed in the mind. And the Buddha says it's unwholesome or self-centered thoughts, words, or actions. So unskillful actions support these mind states. And the unskillful actions arise from uh, not guarding the senses. Meaning, if I let my mind indulge in a certain sense experience, 
meaning I think it really personally, then I'm going to act out. So, for example, if we're really in debt and a catalog arises in the mail, which they seem to do every single day, even if you do your best to get off of the mailing lists. So a catalog arises. You don't have money. You're already in debt. You look through the catalog as you're eating your meal and listening to the radio and doing three or four other things, which is our habits. And there we are. We see something. And then not guarding the senses means that when we see something attractive, we indulge in that experience. We look. And we look not with wisdom, but we look in a superficial way, which means we believe the craving. So craving arises, boy, it would be really nice to have it. I would be really happy if I had that. Not that that actually goes through our mind, but the feeling is there that if only, then I'd be happy. And we indulge in that experience. And we might even put it down, and then we pick it up again, and we go back to that page. That's that indulging, the non guarding of the senses, meaning we're allowing the mind to indulge in a way that activates thoughts, words, and actions that support the hindrances, that support, in this case, craving in the mind. So there's craving in the mind because we're being really loose, really allowing our habits to just do their thing. So when we see something attractive, we allow the habit to crave it to crave that attractive thing, to just act, to act itself out. We don't restrain ourselves at all, refrain from doing it. We just assume it's appropriate to crave things we like and to hate things we hate. So that's what supports the hindrances. And then the question, of course, would be, well, what's the nutriment for non-restraint or this allowing the mental habits to just do their thing? What's the cause for that? And the Buddha says, the lack of mindfulness and clear comprehension. Or you could just say, the lack of wise, clear seeing. When we use the word mindfulness at Common Ground, we're often using mindfulness not in its just technical meaning, but we're really using it to sum up like this balanced mind when all seven factors are present. And it's just, this is just how it is in the West. Mindfulness, sati, is not so often used as the technical um, meaning that the Buddha had, but more to sum up what is uh, the mind when it's in balance. It's energized, it's calm, it's clear, it's not distracted. And we say, oh, that's a moment of mindfulness. So this wise, compre- this wise seeing or this wise mindfulness, the lack of that means that when we see that picture in the catalog, we don't see it. Well, that's just seeing. And then the desire for it, well, that's just desire. That would be a clear seeing. So the lack of that clear seeing means we're going to spin with it. We're going to indulge in it. And it's going to lead to unskillful thoughts, words, and actions, which will support the force of craving in the mind. And craving in the mind, that's a hindrance that hinders wisdom. So there's no wisdom. And then without wisdom, we suffer. That's the definition. And the nutriment, the cause for the lack of wise attention, is superficiality, which is basically not thinking it's important to pay attention. 
right? Isn't that how we feel most of the time? We're safe. My life's okay. Why? Why? So the lack of heedfulness. And this is that word that, you know, I said, I read the last words of the Buddha in Sariputta. The actual word is heedful or apamada. And it, it's a kind of vigilance or not forgetting or uh, the mind, heart full of care, not willing to be distracted, not wanting to be distracted. But mostly we're not there. Mostly we're happy just to kind of cruise. No, there are times during the day when we might be heedful. But then when we get home, we don't want to be heedful. <laughs> you know, or when we're in our office and the door is closed, then I don't have to be heedful. So what we want is a wholesome heedfulness all day long, as long as we're awake. So instead of just willing to be on automatic pilot. And the Buddha goes on, he says, the reason that we're, you know, uh, we lack this wise attention, that we're superficial, is we don't have wise friends that who we respect their teachings. So now we can turn this around and really look at the causes for deep wisdom to arise or insight. So if we have access to a wise friend, like the teachings of wise people, like the Buddha, and we really let it in, like how reasonable these teachings are. I mean, they make a lot of sense. I mean, if we really listen to, to them, they make a lot of sense. And, you know, we can take one or two routes. We can get really devoted to the Buddha and think he's special. But that's not what the Buddha wanted. He was very clear. He, what he really wanted you to do was put his teachings into practice. He said that directly once, you know, the way you honor me is you practice. That's how you honor me. If you want to honor me, put these teachings into practice and see if they work for you, see if they're useful. And he actually scolded people at times for uh, demonstrating like a blind faith. There's one famous monk, I don't know if I can find the section here. There's one famous monk who uh, was really devoted to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, you know, <laughs> He didn't say it in these words, but basically, are you crazy? I mean, this is just a body. You're not going to get anything from this body. If you honor me, then listen to what I have said and check it out for yourself. <coughs> it doesn't do any good to honor this body or this person. I mean, his whole teaching was going in a different direction anyway. So... First, though, we need wise friends. We need to hear the, some wisdom, some different perspective. Instead of the normal perspective we hear, which is, you know, as soon as you're out of danger, you can just relax. You know, if you're fortunate enough to have enough to eat and a safe place to live, then you're okay. You can just relax. And it's fine to fill your life up with, you know, various things like, you know, whatever each of us too with our lives. But that's all we have to do, is just do what we do. There's nothing really to cultivate. So a wise friend says, even if your life is going really well, there's something to cultivate. Because the, the, what we're calling a good life is subject to change. 
and especially from a Buddhist point of view, which has this lifetime after lifetime model. So even if we think we're going to get to, to the end of our life where things are just hunky-dory, we don't know what's next. And if we thought that anything is possible, like we could end up in any kind of situation in this life or in another life, we would want to cultivate a heart that would be okay being in a war zone or being disabled or being this or being that. We wouldn't be content just getting by. And so hearing those teachings, being inspired by those teachings, inspires us to practice being mindful. And this, so not, not being superficial in life, really wanting to understand what's going on, this non-distraction. So that leads to guarding the senses. Like we're really paying attention to what we're seeing, what we're hearing, what we're thinking. And we're not, we're not just paying attention, but we're paying attention with, a, with this discerning sense of, well, is it wholesome to be paying attention to this? Like, is it wholesome to be staring at something that I really want? If all it's doing is igniting greed, maybe I should put my eyes over here. <laughs> you know, if I'm already in debt, if I'm already inclined to buy things I don't, can't afford, does it make sense? to be indulging in this sense experience? Does it make sense to be doing this with my life if I'm inclined in this way? So we just start evaluating our tendency to look at this, to think about that, to put ourselves in this situation or that situation. We evaluate that all the time, all day long, in terms of whether it's skillful or not. What is it igniting? What is it setting in motion? What are the consequences of doing what I'm doing? So there's this ongoing reflection or evaluation. Now, now we're beginning to understand how or where investigation comes in. This is very close to what we'll be talking about for the next few weeks. And so that kind of vigilance in terms of what the senses are knowing. Now it's not about shutting down the senses because then the the path would be pretty easy. All we'd need to do is kind of blind the eyes and you know, break the ears and somehow paralyze the body so we have no sense sensation. You know, and then somehow we'd have to get rid of the frontal lobes so there'd be no thinking or wherever that thinking happens in the brain. But it's so it's not about ending the sense experience. It's about using the senses wisely understanding that what we pay attention to matters and how we pay attention to sense experience matters. It's not just do what you want. Like Ajahn Sumedho, one of the great teachers now who's still alive, a Western Buddhist monk and from Seattle originally, but uh, now for the last several decades has been the abbot of Amaravati in England, a big Buddhist monastery for monks and nuns. Not, not too far from London, um, he says, it, the path isn't so much about following the heart, which is sometimes we hear superficially, you know, we just need to follow the heart. He says it's about training the heart. Because the heart-mind right now is under the influence of a lot of bad habits. And so we have to train it. And the way we train it 
is we cultivate a mindful attention and specifically of these hindrances like what is promoting what kind of indulging or thinking or relating supports greed supports aversion supports dullness restlessness and doubt and then we don't do that if we see that indulging in this way supports greed well we don't do that because not because we want to be good but because greed hurts it squeezes the heart it burdens the heart hatred burdens the heart fear burdens the heart all of these states are heavy and so once we get the connection we naturally want to be vigilant in this way I'll just read the, the last section this is uh, some writings by a venerable Piyadasi who is a, a famous Thai monk and scholar Buddhist teacher Finally, excuse me, finally one does not hear these wise teaching through lack of contact with the wise. So he's saying this is like the cause. Through not consorting with the good. Thus, want of good friendship appears to be the basic reason for the ills of the world. Isn't that interesting? So I think this is really true, although we don't think about it this way. It's like the fact that we're not bumping into really wise people is why the world is the way that it is because wisdom is catchy this is uh, one of the things that the Buddha says because wisdom I mean especially someone who's wise and who knows how to break it down so that when you bump into him or her she's able to say to you what is the next step for you so she's not going to say like the final teaching because you're not there yet but just knows like how do you take a step in the direction of wisdom as opposed to continued confusion or delusion so if we really bump into those people because they know what they're doing and because you know they have the talent of breaking it down not all wise people have that talent to articulate their wisdom that's in, a, in the Buddha system what makes a Buddha a Buddha in part is not just that this person has deep insight but they have other skills that allow them to articulate what they've come to know and so if somebody actually could tell us this we would get it because the step was so clear we would get it oh that just makes sense that leads to my well-being and we would do it we would actually have energy to take that step so this is why the Buddha often talked and, and in the tradition they often talk about the importance of hanging around wise people because if we hang around wise people they inspire us to live a life that's different than what our habit energies might inspire us to do and conversely the basis and nutriment of all good is shown to be good friendship that furnishes one with the food of these useful or wise teachings which in turn produces confidence in the path when one has confidence in the path there comes into existence profound or systematic thinking 
mindfulness and clear comprehension, restraint of the senses, and the three good modes of life, which is just skillful thought, skillful words, skillful deeds, or good ethical conduct. The four arousings of mindfulness, which just means mindfulness of the body and mind, the seven factors of enlightenment or awakening that we're talking about, and deliverance through wisdom, one after another in due order. So in this way, we come to understand that the whole path is the most natural thing in the world. But it takes a certain thing to set it in motion. First, we have to bump up against these teachings that make sense. And we have to bump up to them in a way that we're actually seeing or hearing about what is for us the next step. And that's actually not so easy to do because we don't have a lot of Buddhas. <laughs> wandering around. People who have really deep insight and really great skill in kind of discerning where you're at and happen to be in Minneapolis. <laughs> there just doesn't happen. But we do have the internet and we do have centers like Common Ground and we have a lot of good books. There are a lot of wise people. And uh, so we have access to these teachings, and we have some people who have been practicing for a while who know something about the path, and they can share that. So the question is, you know, are we fortunate enough to have the time to listen and to reflect on the teachings, like to start making the connections? Oh, this really makes sense. What can I do in my life, given my duties, responsibilities? What can I do? What's an appropriate step that I can do that will help, help me better understand whether what seems to be really good in these teachings is in fact good or not? So that it's less like, well, I, I kind of respect these teachings because they make sense. And it goes from that to, I respect these teachings because I've seen how they've worked directly in my life. They've really been a benefit in my life then we're not so dependent on somebody else's confidence in how good these teachings are or the practices are, but we feel like, yeah, I know directly that they're good and useful. Sylvia Burstein has a nice way of talking about investigation, and I'm going to just spend a few minutes talking about that now, and then we'll pick it up again next week. And she says, investigation is that quality of mind which meets experience with the expectation that deeper looking will reveal, reveal hidden secrets. So it's this fundamental humility, like, I don't know everything yet. We don't even necessarily, we want to have the humility that we don't even necessarily know what we should be paying attention to. So even that kind of openness, like what is relevant in this moment to pay attention to? This is part of that guarding the senses. Instead of letting our attention go to whatever is most dramatic, you know, the, the flashing lights in the present moment, which normally get our attention. You know, all you have is drive like down 42nd Street, although I hear they've cleaned it up in New York City. But when I lived there, 
42nd Street was a pretty wild place. And just to see, I mean, nobody would spend money on all those lights and all those gimmicks if human minds weren't attracted. And this happens all the time, or just see advertisements on TV. or So we're susceptible to the flashing lights. And uh, the investigation is beginning to see that our habits can't be trusted, that what we're drawn to pay attention to might actually not be so good to pay attention to. That in the moment, in the present moment, there may be something more relevant to pay attention to. And the Buddha gives us a lot of suggestions to check out, like pay attention to the present moment experience of suffering. Any stress, any squeeze, present moment, squeeze in the heart, weight in the heart, any feeling of numbness, or any experience of pain and the not liking of it. That's one thing to pay attention to. Another thing we can pay attention to, he says is really relevant, is change. How everything, whether it's a thought we're looking at or sensation or sound, everything's in flux. To really let that in, not assuming that we know that everything's changing, because probably, you know, it's very easy for our minds to say, I know things are changing. Duh. <laughs> like only teenagers can say, you know, uh, roll their eyes. But there's knowing that things are changing, and there's really being intimate. So intimate with the changingness of experience that we begin to recognize that what comes with a changing world is no ground that this, this experience that there's ground here, that I'm here, comes from not paying close attention. And when we start to pay close attention, we realize there isn't any ground. It's just change. So this is a good way to ignite some investigation this next week, is just to reflect on change, reflect on the experience of dukkha, as a way of discovering a kind of humility or innocence, like we don't really, we haven't really woken up to what is actually relevant a lot of the time in our life. We're just not there. We're just not awake. So uh, the, the general form, formulation for investigation is that we're seeing two things. In the moment, we're investigating the actual characteristics of the present moment phenomena. And, and I've mentioned, I've sort of talked about this already tonight, and not only are we seeing or investigating or opening up to the present moment phenomena, whether they're mental or physical, whatever's predominant, but we're discerning that, whatever it is that we're knowing, we're discerning it according to what's skillful and unskillful. So, or you could say, we're discerning what we're seeing according to what the Buddha taught. So the Buddha taught that some ways of relating are skillful and some ways of relating are not skillful. Or some forces in the mind, habits of the mind like greed, are unskillful because they lead to suffering. Other forces in the mind, like mindfulness as a force in the mind, is skillful because it doesn't lead to suffering. Kindness, true kindness, doesn't lead to suffering. 
as a force in the mind. So we can look at the different forces in the mind, see them clearly, but also there's an additional part that's really important, which is this discernment. So we're actually discerning the experience. It's not just, it's not quite right to say just being receptive. Now, in, in, eventually, the discerning is effortless. It just happens. But in the beginning, we have to actively discern. We have to incline the mind to want to understand whether this moment, experience as it is, and the way we're relating, so the whole package, whether it's skillful or not. Whether what's going on in the present moment is in the direction of suffering for us and others, or in the direction of release. And in every, every moment, it's always one or the other. There's no real holding zone. Either the mind in this moment is inclining towards peace or ease or release, or it's inclining towards tension or suffering. And so we need to uh, um, be inclined to notice, to discern, to have that question in the mind. Is this way of being in the direction of suffering or freedom? So if we looked right now, just as a way to end the, the talk tonight before our discussion, now just looking now at the mind, what's being known, and if there's some greediness in the mind, like really wanting to get this, tired of being a suffering, deluded being. You know, I want to be free. Then, then we can look. Now, that actually, even though it on the surface might appear to be wholesome, yeah, that, that must be the vigilance the Buddha's talking about. But if we really look at it viscerally, so we're opening to the actual experience of wanting to get this, then we might see that it's in the direction of the heart getting heavy, getting tight. Or if we notice the kind of like, uh, yeah, this makes sense, but it just doesn't work in my life. I'm just too busy. It's just too much. I'm a little overwhelmed. And then we might notice that, that aversion, like, oh, this is just a little too intense for me. I just came to calm down a little. You know? And then we can see, oh, that's unskillful, because that's the heart. That's like, ooh. That's actually, we think we're protecting ourselves from pushing away something that's too much. But actually, that's itself. That fear is itself stress on the heart. It's squeezing the heart. We can actually discern right in that moment, this is squeezing the heart. Or you might just be present, a kind of uh, open sponge, and you're just letting the teachings land and have an effect. Just like, you know, if you're outside and it rains, you just let the rain hit us or you let the breeze hit us. The smells, they just arrive. If we have that, we might notice that there's nothing agitating in that way of being. Just allowing things to be the way they are. There may be moments of being inspired, there may be moments of boredom, but when we're inspired, there's no grasping. When we're bored or feeling really sleepy, there's no rejection like, oh, I'm bad because I'm sleepy, or this is bad because it's boring. So we can have those same states, but without the identification 
And then we'll notice, oh, this is to be trusted. This isn't agitating, this way of being, this way of relating. So that's our job for the next few weeks and for the rest of our lives, lives of course. That we have about 10 or 12 minutes. If people have some questions or any thoughts you'd like to share from your own practice, what you're noticing about mindfulness or about this quality of investigation that you'd like to bring up. Anything come to mind? Judy. Well, investigation is not usually my strong point, but I have noticed, um, and it was just so crystal clear to me that um, I was paying attention to my consumption of alcohol, kind of trying to reduce that, and I, I noticed that when I was watching a movie, and maybe there'd be a little bit of drama or whatever, but I started to notice that when the characters in the movie started drinking alcohol, it was a, this unconscious stimu- stimuli for me. I, I, I'd start noticing that I'd walk up and go into the kitchen to go get something to drink and started making this connection. And it was really interesting to me how totally obvious this was. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I really realized that before I started just kind of paying attention. Yeah. And so now I just kind of, I see that and I go, oh yeah, it's that, it's that stimulus in the movie. You know, because it really had not anything to do with, it did not originate out of my desire, which sometimes could be the case, you know, where you're feeling like, oh, I'm nervous over this or that. It didn't Mm -hmm. originate with me at all. It was a completely external stimulus. Yeah. And this is exactly what we talked about. Like, if we're not guarding the senses and we're sitting there watching the movie and you see the person drink, well, we're not aware of it, but the mind is relating to those visual images in a particular way. Like, we're seeing, and then there's something arising in the scene, and then we relate to that, like maybe a feeling of pleasantness, oh, that would be nice. And, and because we're not aware, we're not guarding the senses, it has an effect on the mind. And before we know it, like you said, we're there pouring a drink and drinking it. And this happens all the time, and not, obviously not just with alcohol, but all kinds of behaviors just arise because we're not paying attention. And then we wonder, I mean, even when we're at the point which takes a lot of work, where we understand that this is not healthy or good for us to do it, but we always wonder, why do I keep doing it? I know so clearly that this isn't good for me. But that's in hindsight. What we're missing is where there's a sense experience that we're not paying attention that's the trigger for a behavior that we're trying to end. But because we're not awake in that moment that it's getting triggered, we can't stop it. We have to actually uh, guard the senses so that in that moment when that habit is being triggered, there's mindfulness. And we'll see it being triggered. And as we see it being triggered, then the recognition will, will be, before we even act out the habit, the recognition will be, this isn't something I want to do. This isn't something that's good to do. And we can drop it before we get up and get the drink and drink it, which is ideal, of course. Thanks, Judy, for sharing that. Other thoughts people have? Mm-hmm. Ben. I've been thinking a lot recently about craving and desire as a food, um, which has been interesting because, of course, 
it's one thing to see a desire for food and say it is unwholesome, and of course you also have to eat. So, and, and I've come to the conclusion that, that for years, the only reason I ever ate anything was because of mindless craving. I mean, it was, even if it was carrots on the front of it, it was mindless craving, it was putting them in my mouth. And uh, I'm interested in what you have to say about how to pursue something like eating that's tied up with craving and which is also necessary. Yeah. Well, to keep the mind focused on the necessity part. So there's a traditional chant that the monks and nuns would do before they would eat. And just to paraphrase it, it would be, it would be something like, um, I vow not to use this food as entertainment, but only as a way to strengthen the body, to keep the body healthy, so that I can have a good life where I can have insight, where I can learn things that are important to learn. So we can maintain that reflection as we're eating. So there's, there's basically two ways to do this. One is to be mindful of the lifting, the chewing, the tasting. So to be so full of the experience that that mindlessness doesn't come in, where we're just not really there and just acting out craving or whatever we might be acting on. And then the other way is to do more of a reflection. So there's some skillful thinking here where we're using thought to remind ourselves that, as you described, this body requires food. And I care about this body because I care about this life, and I care about this life because I understand there's actually something I can do with this life, besides just getting to the end, you know, like having enough money to get to the end and taking care of all my obligations with my kids and, you know, which is a lot of how we live our lives. Like, just let me get through life without making any mistakes. And that's actually considered a pretty noble pursuit. But instead, we can have a, a deeper pursuit. Like, actually, there's, there's some really important things that can be cultivated in life, like wisdom and compassion. And it's really my intention. And to do that, I need a healthy body. And in order to have a healthy body, I need to eat. And so just to keep that reflection going as we eat, can be really powerful. That's why traditionally people pray at the beginning of a meal. It's just to remember, like put their life in perspective. And not that it happens, it usually ends up being a, an empty gesture. But if we can find a way to do a prayer or have a reflection that isn't an empty gesture, but actually keeps the attention grounded in what this is about. Yeah, I've tried different things in my life with uh, mild success, but not great success. Because we have a lot of delusion around eating, what I have been successful about is reducing how, uh, how often I eat. <laughs> so, I, for different periods of time, you know, I just have fewer meals, <laughs> which reduces the amount of delusion, because I just, I still eat a lot, but I don't eat as often. And, uh, yeah. So, but there are different. That's one of the tricks, you know. In, in monasticism, is you don't eat afternoon. That's one of the reasons, you know. You just like cut out some delusion by only having one or two meals a day instead of three. David. With regard to the food, another thing that I simply ask myself is my stomach aching with hunger, or is it my mouth that wants to? A lot of times, it's my mouth that wants to. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Thanks, David. Adam? Another trick on monasticism from that 
one of the monks who visited, I think last Halloween, was that he said they get the dessert with the main course and then the desire goes away. Yeah, don't do it with guests. <laughs> but 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 it could it could be like how we prepare the food too. I mean, it could still be with a lot of sensitivity, but actually. Uh, we don't need a lot of interesting foods. The body is quite content in terms of health with some basic foods. So that's another thing. Is It's a little bit related to what David was saying. Like I noticed my mind is sort of searching for something that would be interesting to eat. And that's like a telltale sign that we're looking for entertainment and not for nutrition. So it's like a, a, it takes a lot of presence, though, to notice what the body actually, whether it needs food and what it actually needs, and just to respond. But I think at times I felt that. So I think it's really available. Like if we turn our mind in that direction, learn to listen, the body will tell us whether we need to eat and even what kind of food would be healthful for the body to eat. Any last quick statement or comment before we end? Sure. Um, when I first came to this practice a few years ago, and I would hear um, some of these discussions around, say, we only need so many things that are necessary for the body and this sort of thing, I noticed a lot of aversion to sort of the aestheticism of it, and really like, I want my life to be <laughs> about fullness and joy. And what's good now is I see that it's not yeah. its not actually that way. So the thing I think that I always bring up, though, when I notice, because I still have that sort of aversion, <coughs> having been brought up in a very strict sort of way, is that really for me, um, when I bring that quality of investigation, it always brings up more joy for me <laughs> and interest. Yeah. So it's always... <laughs> Which is the next factor. That, yeah, to the conversation and always yeah. doing these things as opposed to <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. minimalizing, you know, or minimizing our experience. Actually, paradoxically, it always brings more fullness to it. So. Investigation leads to energy, which leads to joy. Yeah. And this is where we'll go at, uh, over the next several weeks. Yeah, thanks, Sharon. It's a good place to end. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. We can take a breath or two together. <coughs> and taking a moment to reflect on our deepest aspiration for our lives. Considering the aspiration to live and practice for the benefit of all beings, which of course includes ourselves, to practice in a way that supports wisdom, and patience, and kindness, as a way of taking care of all beings without exception. May all beings be at ease, free from suffering, and free from the causes, the roots of suffering. Have a good week, everyone. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.